I'm Sandy Swallow. I'm Okalala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne. I've been an artist for over 30 years and through my artwork have portrayed my heritage. Now I'm starting a brand new venture called Lakota Link and I'm here to share with you and I hope you enjoy it. Lakota Link. Greetings from the home of the Seven Council Fires land of the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaties, bringing stories old and new of Lakota values, courage, respect, wisdom, to name a few. Well, good afternoon. This is uh, coming from the Black Hills of South Dakota, and I have a very learned and educated guest today, and his name is Dr. Eric Zimmer, and he happens to be a historian. He's also a research fellow for the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies, which is dear to my heart as I've participated in some of their exhibits on the Fort Laramie Treaties and other things. Uh, And we also had visited with Dr. Greg Howe a few months ago. And then I um, was very happy to see that Eric is also an author, and perhaps we can talk a little bit about that later on. But how are you doing today, Eric? I am well, Sandy, and I wanted to say thanks so much for uh, reaching out to me. I'm really excited to do that. And if you've already spoken with uh, Craig Howe, I know I'm in good company. He's a friend of mine and somebody I respect a lot. So um, hopefully I can, you know, be about half as smart as he probably was. <laughs> well, I've, I've got to give you a little background with him. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Iris Sully, she went to school with him down by Martin. And so she's known him a long time. And when he was in, I don't know if you know, he was at the... Newberry Library in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We took a trip out there, and and that's when I first met him. And so that's like 1995. So we've been friends for a long time. But uh, what can you kind of explain to me a little bit this term research fellow? What what does that mean, and what do you do? Yeah, so um, Craig's organization, the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies, or or Cairns, which is located down um, on his family's land uh, at a place called Wing Springs, uh, outside of Martin, South Dakota, um, is an organization that, you know, really promotes education and learning about Native issues, um, especially uh, Lakota issues here on the Northern Plains, but things more generally. And as I, I mentioned, I've known Craig for a number of years now, and, you know, part of what I thought I could do as someone who grew up in this area and been fortunate enough to have a um, education uh, all the way up through the doctoral level in, in American history, focusing on Native studies, that uh, when I moved back to the Black Hills, that I would be able to help um, support the work that he was doing. And so he and I um, created this fellows program, which is basically a way to try to connect different folks who are interested in these same issues 
uh, to bounce ideas off of one another and uh, do work that supports Native people, but the broader mission of, of Cairns itself. And uh, it's been a, a great experience. And I hope any of your listeners uh, who are interested will look up Cairns and, and support them however however they think they can. And I know that, you, you know, I've been able to see you on TV and you do very good job on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, thank you very much. I like to do it on the radio or on, you know, talking because I never like to look at myself on TV. But I, I always say I wished it was 30 pounds and 30 years before, but it isn't. So, but you you do a, such a nice job. And how I got interested and kind of looked up your name was you had uh, done a, a brief talk about the coalition for uh, the board. Help me a little bit with this with the boarding schools. Can you kind of explain a little bit about that? And this is in terms of Rapid City, South Dakota. Yeah, so I am a, a volunteer researcher and historian for the um, Rapid City Indian Boarding School Lands Project, which uh, is a very long name, but um, it's a project that reflects a very long history. So I guess the name and the story match. Basically, the story is, uh, for anybody who's not familiar, in the latter part of the 19th century and uh, up through much of the 20th century, the federal government ran what were called Indian boarding schools. And boarding schools um, have sort of changed over time, and there's different iterations of them in different places. But the kind of boarding school that the one in Rapid City was was called a residential boarding school. And it was run by the federal government. And, and the, the, the function of the school was to assimilate Native children, right? So the federal government um, had these programs where they would basically go to reservations, um, take children from families, uh, oftentimes either forcibly take children uh, or coerce their parents through one way or another to make them enroll their kids in these schools, uh, bring them to cities like Rapid City, uh, for anybody who knows this place, the old campus of what's what's now called Susan or the Oyate Health Center uh, on the west side of town was the headquarters for the Rapid City Indian School. And and students would be brought there and they would be um, basically educated in various, uh, you know, reading and writing and arithmetic. But they also had to conduct manual labor and learn what they called industrial education. Uh, with the idea being that if Native children didn't speak their language, cut their hair, dressed like white people, that they would eventually assimilate into white society. And that story is one that is uh, well known within the Native community uh, here in Western South Dakota and elsewhere. But one of the things that was was less well known was was a story of what happened to the land of the Rapid City Indian School. So just for for context for your listeners, these, these boarding schools were often placed in very rural places. Uh, at the time in 1898, when the Rapid City Indian School opened, um, Rapid City was a, a small sort of frontier town in the, in the, uh, on the eastern edge of the Black Hills. The boarding school itself uh, actually had a land grant of about uh, 1,200 acres or more from the federal government. And I mean, it's a huge swath of land. And the reason that it was so big was because the schools had to be self-sustaining. Um, they had, you know, dairy cows and, you know, farms and um, outbuildings for you know, repairing the boiler and things like that. 
Um, and part of what this, the kids did at these schools was actually, you know, they would study half the day and then go work, you know, picking potatoes or doing something out in the fields for the rest of the day. Uh, and so these places had to be uh, very large and they had to have all this land and property to be able to do all these different things that supported the mission of the school. Well, probably, I think seven or eight years ago now, uh, even before I had moved back from a graduate school to Rapid City, um, some friends and colleagues of mine, uh, Kitty Conti and uh, Heather Don Thompson and some others, um, were looking into the history of the 75th anniversary of the Susan School or excuse me, the Susan um, Indian Health Service uh, a hospital that's on that campus. And while they were doing that, of course, people knew a little bit about the history of the boarding school. And so they went back and they were uh, digging through the records that showed how um, the boarding school went from being a boarding school to becoming a CCC camp during the Great Depression to eventually becoming a tuberculosis clinic for Native people and then eventually the, the Susan Hospital. And while they were talking about the boarding school part of that, a group of um, elders, Lakota elders here in Rapid City, um, asked them to find, quote unquote, find the graves is what they said. And so uh, it turns out that generations of native people have known this story, but it has faded away in other circles, that there were a, a large number of native children who died at the Rapid City Indian School, either from diseases or in accidents or from other causes, and that they were buried somewhere on that 1,200-acre parcel of land. And many of their graves were not marked. And in many cases, we found out their families were never even notified what happened to these children. So it was a, a real tragedy. And as Heather and Kibby and, and those folks were looking for the graves, they basically had to do plot-by-plot plot research to figure out you know, the, where the property was and try to figure out where the most logical place for these graves might have been. They also uncovered uh, another story that had um, had lived on through the memory of Native people in Rapid City, but had, uh, again, sort of faded away from the non-Native and the, the broader sort of narrative of, of the way Rapid City organized itself. And the long story short, it is a very complicated story. But basically, um, after World War II, Rapid City was growing very, very quickly. And at that time, as I mentioned, the boarding school had become the Sioux Sanitary and the federal I, government. I'd like to interject before you go on, because sure. this is so interesting. And sure. two things is uh, my just family history wise. I know my aunt Joe and my aunt Edna, Josephine and Edna Swallow were uh, sent up to Rapid City to the boarding school. And sure. uh, family history tells me that they didn't like it very well. And so they came home, and that home was at Oryx. They came home, and I think they went back to finish out the year, but then my uh, Grandpa Swallow didn't make them go back up there. And then on another personal note, when you say that that was a san sanatorium for a tuberculosis patients, my mom contacted tuberculosis uh, before I was born, and when she, when I was born, it became active again, and she had to be there, I think, about two years. At, at that time, that was just bed rest. So my Aunt Jo uh, took care of me and raised me for the first two years of my life. But 
You know, I guess the reason I wanted to interject this is because it puts a human level on, you know, these were people (laughs) that, uh, you know, their lives were disrupted by having to go away to school, boarding school. And I'm just really glad that there's some people that care and you and amongst some others that have dug into this history and and then please go on to now what's going on sure no well and and uh, thank you very much for for sharing that sorry to be hear about the hard time that your grandparents had and that your mom had it at tuberculosis and and uh, at the school um and you know i Again, I'm glad you interjected in part because it is a good reminder, um, and I probably should have said this at the outset, but the folks like me, you know, researchers, um, I'm a non-Native person and a historian, and as as much as I've spent time with this story and tried to uh, understand it and and be helpful to helping the community understand it, it is important to remember that in many cases, the history that we have, you know, told, both the part about the boarding school I said a moment ago and what we'll talk about in a minute, these are stories that people in the Native community knew all along and never forgot. Um, over the last few years, we've done lots and lots of presentations to different audiences across West, Western South Dakota. And one of the things that always strikes us as being really uh, sort of surprising for us is that when I give a talk to the, to the non-Native community, to white people in Rapid City or Spearfish or wherever we do this talk, their eyes get wide and they go, oh my gosh, I, I'd never heard that. How could I live here my whole life and not hear that story, et cetera? And then you always have Native people who come up afterwards and go, I, I, you know, I appreciate the work you've done, but I've known this all along. My family's been saying this for years and no one was listening, you know? And so not just echoing what you said about um, putting a human face to it, but reminding people that um, keeping these stories alive is, is an important part of the work itself because... In some cases, so much has been done to try to erase them and to get people to, to forget about it. Um, did you want me to continue and talk a little bit about the, the, the rest of the story? Please, or the initiative please do. Now? Yes. Sure. So, uh, again, just picking up uh, roughly after World War II, as I was talking a few minutes ago, as Rapid City was expanding because uh, there's a post-war housing boom, as Ellsworth Air Force Base was expanded and all these people are moving into town and the city was growing, Basically, what happened was the Department of the Interior came back to the city and said, um, we realize that we don't need all of this 1,200 acres anymore. We had all this land for the boarding school, but we only need a small portion of that for uh, for the, the sanitarium to operate. And so the Department of the Interior, through one way or the other, made it known to the Rapid City community that it was um, you know, going to free up some of that land. And so what we discovered is there was this really, um, you know, intensive lobbying effort where everybody in Rapid City, from the Chamber of Commerce to the State National Guard to, you know, different entities and churches and things in town, and the Native community in Rapid City knew that this land was going to be divided up, and everybody uh, wanted a piece of it. And for people who are familiar with Rapid City, just so you have a frame of reference, the piece of land we're talking about was about 1,200 acres that stretched from Mountain View Road over by Bacon Park um, in town, all the way to the west past the Catholic Church that's right by Canyon Lake. I mean, there's a, a pretty big, long strip of the west side of Rapid City, which is people who know this town will know is 
very beautiful land that's right along the creek. Um, and, you know, now it's filled with all these parks and things. Uh, and actually the way that it became filled with parks and things was that the Department of the Interior ended up uh, convincing Congress to pass a law uh, enabling it to divide up the land and give it to different categories of, of people so the or entities. The first uh, group of entities was the city, the school board, um, or the state of South Dakota could get land for free anywhere in that 1,200 acres in order to use it for municipal purposes, education purposes, or to, uh, you know, land for the for the National Guard. So that's why there's lots of parks like Sioux Park. That's why there is the National Guard training uh, camp and Camp Rapid. And it's also uh, why there's a number of schools, uh, West Middle School, Stevens High School, Canyon Lake Elementary, all of those are, are in that part of town. Uh, the second group was religious institutions. So because of separation of church and state, Congress couldn't sell that land directly, uh, or excuse me, Congress couldn't give that land for free to the churches, but it could sell it to them uh, so that they could hold the land in, in fee simple, which is the legal way of saying private property ownership in the same way, you know, somebody owns the, the land that their house is on, right? And so a number of churches bought land. In some cases, we were able to demonstrate uh, churches bought land for uh, pennies on the dollar uh, for well below what it was probably worth and then sold it for enormous profits a couple of years later. Um, so that's one set of uh, you know challenging circumstances. And then the third uh, group of people who were allowed to get land from the Department of the Interior was quote unquote needy Indians. And that was a term of art used at the time to uh, basically reference the um, disadvantaged native community that lived in Rapid City at the time. Um, and what we discovered through our research was that to, you know, unfortunately, uh, to no one's surprise, I guess, who lives in Rapid City, or at least not very much surprised, none of uh, the native community got any of that land. All the land was divided up uh, between the other um, uh, groups that were eligible for it. Um, and the native community, despite asking for years and years, um, was never granted any of that property. Um, and then the story does intersect with broader patterns of things that were underway in, in Rapid City. Um, just to summarize, if again, if anybody's familiar with Rapid, you'll, you'll know about uh, two little neighborhoods on the north side of town uh, called the Sioux Edition and Lakota Homes. And one of the things that we found was that basically there was some um, creative, if you will, decision-making that took place in the 1950s where the city ended up acquiring a piece of land um, north of town to be able to move the native community uh, up to what became the Sioux Edition. And so they actually, um, largely to clear the downtown area of the native population uh, to make room for growth and to make the town more um, attractive for tourists, they basically didn't want native people uh, in sight. And so they uh, went through this whole process where they went and dismantled a neighborhood called the Oshkosh Camp, which was down by Rapid Creek in downtown, basically picked up that camp, moved all the families out north of the city limits and dropped them there at a place that was known as the Sioux Edition. Uh, the Sioux Edition at the time, this would be 1954, was, was basically an open prairie out in the middle of nowhere, about two miles from downtown. Um, some of the oral histories we've seen talk about how there were uh, you know, field mice and rattlesnakes and things. At one point, the county actually had to come out and douse the grand ground with gasoline to kill a bunch of the snakes that were up there. And these native families lived up at the Sioux Edition for at least 15 years, maybe a little bit longer, 
without access to water or sewer from the city because nobody wanted to pay for it. And so as we've uncovered these stories and done all of this research, it has really generated a lot of interest within the community here. And for the last five years or so, um, not only have we been telling this story and doing further research um, and raising awareness about it, but we actually went to the uh, city council. And this last November, the city council passed a resolution that formally acknowledges um, parts of this history, which is, which is, I think, an important step forward for the community to, to recognize that it happened and to commit to, to doing better in the future. But then the city also committed a, a substantial amount of uh, land and resources to be able to make good on some of the um, a more complicated pieces of those land swaps that happened in the 50s to try to make an investment today in native nonprofits and in the native community so that uh, Rapid City can begin to heal going forward from a lot of what, what happened during this um, earlier challenging era. That's wonderful that you have put so much work and time and effort along with others, I'm sure. But, you know, that's very educational for me to, to learn this. I mean, I, I knew snippets of it, so to speak, but I think you gave a really good explanation. And another question I kind of have for you, how, how come you got into this? I mean, what, was there any, anything triggered that this interest or have you always been interested in history and especially Native American history? Yeah, um, I'll happy to talk about that. I did want to say really quickly uh, that you're right a moment ago. I, I am only one of a very large number of people who have been involved in this project. Uh, all Native-led, and we have about 25 people who are, you know, show up at the meetings every week, and then another group of 75 to 100 volunteers who have helped us do everything from organize events, to raise awareness, uh, to, you know, looking up plots of land on GIS maps and that sort of thing. And so I just want, um, you know, you and your your listeners to know that um, I'm just one part of a, a broader, you know, incredible group of people who's, who's dedicated themselves to this work over the last couple of years. But part of the reason I'm talking to you relates to your second question. It's because I am a professional historian. Uh, I have a PhD in American history focused on, on Native studies. Um, and environmental history. And the way I came to this <laughs> it was, you know, so, a little bit by accident. I think if you ask anybody how they got where they are in life, they go, well, you know, I don't know. I just sort of showed up. Um, I realized that like a lot of non-Native people, I grew up in Rapid City, not really knowing the history of this place, especially as it relates to Native people. I, of course, you know, have driven by a crazy horse a million times in my life and seen the the carving I, of course, you know, hear and have heard the references to the treaties and, you know, Wounded Knee and all the stuff that people are generally familiar with. But we, we have this interesting way in Western South Dakota of growing up steeped in, in indigenous histories, but not really uh, engaging with them um, in, a, in a deep way. And while I was in college, I had a, a couple of really important uh, friends and mentors who I met. Uh, Rosalie Little Thunder was at Black Hill State at the time. Um, she was very influential in my life. Craig Howe, who we talked about earlier. Um, and these folks just helped me understand how to marry my interest in being a historian. Uh, not that I knew you know, what that really meant at the time, 
Um, but with this interest in wanting to understand the place where I grew up and, and some of the challenges that we face still today. So from Black Hills State, where I studied history and political science, I went to the University of Iowa, uh, where I did a master's and a PhD focused on native land issues. Um, out there, I did a different project uh, that was focused on a tribe called the Meskwaki Nation, which actually has this fascinating story of land reclamation, how they took their land back and have done pretty amazing things with it ever since. But my goal was always to come back to the Black Hills and try to use that knowledge and, and that skill set as a historian to, to, to help out. And I was just fortunate that right when I got back in 2015, uh, Heather and Kibby and the folks I was talking about a few minutes ago were, you know, a, a couple of years into the research that they were doing. And I realized that what I was interested in and what they were doing were very complementary. And, and we always joke when we when we get together that it was like fate brought us all together at the same moment, that this critical mass of people were all interested in telling the story that that had been told and then forgotten so many times before. Um, and through the contributions of this larger group of people and the willingness of the Rapid City community to hear it and take it seriously, we've been able to, um, you know, really inspire uh, a conversation that that I that I think is um, unlike that's been a long time coming, but is also unlike any that the community's had in a very long time. And so I think that's I think those are all good things. Yes. Definitely. And can you tell um, our listeners, I understand you're an author, and what what are the names of the books, and where you can find them? Oh, sure. Well, I, um, I mean, I've, I've, I've written a, a number of academic article, articles on, on uh, Native issues that you could, you know, find if you Googled my name in Historian or something like that, or my name in Meskwaki, I guess. I wrote an article uh, that would, might be interesting to people in the Black Hills about Calvin Coolidge's visit um, to Pine Ridge back in 1927. Um, other than that, I have uh, co-authored with a colleague of mine a, a book about uh, the history of Black Hills Corporation, which is the big energy utility, West River, that's one of the largest companies in, uh, in South Dakota. Um, I wrote a book called The Question is Why, Stanford M. Adelstein, A Jewish Life in South Dakota, which uh, is a history of a prominent um, a biography of a prominent uh, Jewish politician and businessman from West River, who a lot of people might know, who had this really fascinating life, whose family emigrated from Russia to Western South Dakota. And then he was really involved in all sorts of, um, and basically everything that happened in Western South Dakota over the last um 85 or 90 years or so. And you can pick that up at Mitzi's books in Rapid City or uh, order it online if you wanted to. And, and that's really fun with, with a lot of interesting intersections of the native history. And then my most recent project that I'm working on now is actually revising my dissertation that I mentioned earlier, which is about the Meskwaki Nation. Uh, that book is under contract with the University of Oklahoma Press, and it'll be coming out uh, hopefully in the next uh, year or two, fingers crossed. So have to have to wait for that. One. Well, it sounds like you're you're pretty busy, but I would encourage you to uh, someday, you know, when you have time, to sit down and and write a history about this, you know, the boarding school situation, and the because to me I find it very fascinating, and and it's a little different slant because. It, it's telling the history of the boarding schools, but it's also going further on down history to our day-to-day life right now. And 
so I would encourage you to do that. But, well, Eric, I am so happy that you were willing to be on Lakota Link. And when somebody is, and I like to kind of give them a Lakota value, and I guess the Lakota value that I would give you is generosity because you're you're a generous person and not just in in your mind with being accepting of other people and other cultures, but also with your time and, and work that you've done. So I just want to thank you for being on Lakota Link. Well, thanks so much for having me, Sandy. And, and I intend to write something uh, with my uh, friends and colleagues in the project about this, but also for any of your listeners, Scott Riney, who's a historian, wrote a great book about the boarding school called the Rapid City Indian School. Um, and so while you wait for whatever we produce, um, read his book because it, it's great. And again, just thank you so much for having me and for spreading the word about all this good work. Well, I hope you enjoyed our segment. You know, I I enjoy visiting with the people. And if you did, go to sandyswallowgallery.com where you can find my artwork and find some history and some background. Please subscribe to it or if you have some comments, we would love to hear your opinion. This is a new adventure for us and I value your opinion. This song is written and sung by my good friend, Quincy Goodstar. Lakota Link is here to share Lakota values. God bless you on your journey. Wopila, thank you for joining us.